Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind Stocks and a Move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 178. Well, just ahead, a surprising post-pandemic pain for a healthcare services company whose customers aren't paying. And plug power keeps plugging along, but is enough. And we'll gauge the health of factories across the globe through the lens of Columbus McKinnon, a really cool company that makes lifts and hoists. I said hoists. Yeah, you know I'm going to love this one. The guest we've got is Columbus McKinnon CEO David Wilson. We're going to have David Wilson right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever. With ERA, customize your company watch lists and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you may have just discovered this show, but you can discover every show by clicking the subscribe button and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. That way, it'll hit every single episode. And the drill down is brought to you by Brain Trust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Brain Trust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We're going to explain the business stories behind some stocks that are moving around quite a bit. Joining me right now, as always, executive producer Isaac Webster. Isaac, how are you? Corey, how are you this day after election day? Um, it is. And uh, yes, I was uh, working on this election um, mm-hmm. vociferously. Um, an exciting result, I think, across the country. Yeah. Now, Corey, what stocks are we drilling down on today? Well, I want to start with talking about exciting. R1 RCM is a, a healthcare services company with about a $3 billion market cap. Uh, and it's a lot less market cap than it had just a week ago. So I'm really glad you picked this stock. I've never heard of this company before, but it touches a lot of our lives. I want you to explain the name, if you can. RCM trades under RCM and shares have nosedived 60% over the past five days suffering one of its biggest one-day drops since going public in 2010. If you look at a year chart, RCM shares have dropped 73% over the past 12 months. What is going on with this company? Well, this uh, company is based in Murray, Utah, just outside of us, near near Salt Lake City. And it does uh, R1 RCM. RCM uh, stands for Revenue Cycle Management Services, which um, helps um, uh, healthcare providers manage their revenues in a more consistent way. Except these guys can't manage their own revenues. Um, they uh, sounds like in, it. In, in providing software to, to healthcare uh, providers, um, they couldn't get uh, one of their big customers to pay them at all because their customers are getting into financial trouble. You know, it's really interesting what we saw during the pandemic because a lot of people were sick and a lot of people weren't going to the hospital. Uh, right. Not uh, they were going to because for fear of getting COVID. So a lot of elective um, uh, procedures and so on. Uh, didn't happen. Uh, hospitals were able to actually cut costs a lot. Of, they had, of course, they had the huge costs 
around COVID. So it's just a really an interesting time for these businesses. And uh, then there was a big boom afterwards, uh, right after uh, the the initial sort of quarantine lockdowns that were different in different places in the country. But uh, the result ultimately was that there was a big boom in uh, uh, healthcare service providing uh, provisions, if you will, uh, in the in the last couple of years. But now that we're kind of in a post post pandemic period, uh, COVID infections aside, um, it's getting to be a really messy time for some of these companies and RCM apparently just really screwed up, uh, couldn't, uh, uh, customers are facing financial challenges were unable to make some payment deadlines. They reported a really weak quarter because they didn't get paid and they, they're not giving the boot to, but the longtime CEO, Joe Flanagan, is suddenly stepping down after 10 years with the company. He was in the conference call, but um, they were really dancing around the issues of, of what came down. Here's CEO Joe Flanagan talking about um, uh the active discussions they're having with their customers. You can, you can only imagine what those discussions are like, something like, pay us, please pay us, please pay us. Here's Joe Flanagan. We're in active discussions with all of our customers um, in a coordinated way just to work together uh, to, to respond to this dynamic. In the, short term, in the short term, Charles, as I mentioned in my commentary, uh, we are going to increase capacity um, because um, the, 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 that's the main lever uh, that we have. And so that capacity increase is really in two areas. One, um, and, and, and it's driven by changing our operating standards on frequency of follow-up um, and, um, uh, and the number of times um, and on what cycle time we set that standard uh, to work the um, the receivable or the claim in the billing and follow-up process. Uh, our follow-up touches are about are up about 17% in the trailing four weeks, and we continue to expect to hold at that capacity Q, through Q3 and into Q4. Uh, we've also added capacity um, in our physician advisory services in partnership with the cloud med team uh, that has capabilities in that area as well, and that's to respond to increases in clinical requests um, in the billing and follow-up process. So in the short term, um, you know, that's that's the response that we're going to, we, we are in the, in the midst of putting in place. Um, and we do expect that to yield results. Over the long term, um, we expect two things to happen. This to normalize. We don't think this is a, a, a structural change per se. Um, we, we, we expect this to normalize and get back to uh, the normal response times that we're used to. So Joe Flanagan, that's the outgoing CEO, correct? That's correct. So he's he's there now, but he's bolting, but he was on the conference call. Yeah, so seems like uh, they're getting penalized because their customers can't pay. Well, I, what I would say is the stock starts to recognize the performance of the business and the business isn't performing well. There you go. I don't know if it's a penalty. It's just, you know, it's, I mean, you know, if you lose the game, you lose the game. Right. Hey, Corey, what is your next drill down? Well, I want to go to one of our former guests. We had, had the CEO of Plug Power on the show, and Plug Power reported results. Um, and I thought it was just interesting how to kind of go back and take a look at these guys. Yeah, that was a good interview with Plug Power CEO. Plug, uh, trades under Plug, P-L-U-G, and shares have tumbled 26% over the past month and are down 64% in a year. Plug, of course, makes those hydrogen fuel cell technology for electric cars. For, for trucks or in, in, trucks. in, in forklifts. And vehicles, like I should say. 
Right. And, uh, and, uh, uh, there was a lot of hope that uh, with the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, mm-hmm. tax incentives would put as much as $3 per kilogram of uh, hydrogen gas, um, uh, or, uh, which will help encourage the use of that, um, mm-hmm. uh, which is a big deal because a kilogram of hydrogen gas is roughly the same amount of um, output as a, as a gallon of diesel fuel. So $3 per you know, gallon of fuel, if you will, or a kilogram of hydrogen gas is a pretty big deal. Uh, and that subsidy could make this a very attractive uh, business, but they've always kind of been—it's always kind of been on the on the come and not quite there. But they are building a big factory in Rochester. They're calling it a Rochester, New York. They're calling it a Gigafactory, um, and that'll allow them to build a lot more stuff. They say they also improved their technology, so they're they're using less precious metals in the construction of what they're doing. Uh, um, and they think that this this Gigafactory in Rochester, when it's built, will help them hit some really ambitious um, revenue. Goals. How ambitious? Well, they did $158 million in the quarter they just reported this last week. That's up 36% year over year. But they say in 2023, they'll do $1.4 billion in a year. So that's, huh. you know, roughly, you know, more than double of where, uh, where they are right now on, a, on an annualized run rate. Um, and, but of course, they've got to get this factory done in time to do that. So the question is, do these guys have the ability to build this plant course, they say they do. Here's CEO Andy Marsh. You can see how Plug is thinking about scaling our own manufacturing operations. I think when you take a step, then you know, look at our Vista plant, which is 400,000 square feet. Uh, you know, which we were able to build in less than a year uh, to support our business activity. So, from our own internal capability, uh, we feel we feel very comfortable with. As you know, we've hired people who scaled the Tesla business to run both our operation and he has reporting into him folks who worked in the Tesla supply chain. We are looking, you know, we are very focused on some critical items. Uh, Some of those items are, I'll say, critical to the performance of the products, things you may not think a lot about, things like humidifiers, hydrogen tanks, and, you know, we have efforts not only to uh, uh, support strong air presence suppliers, but we really had a focus on diversifying our supplier base. And like many people, we're very focused on semiconductors to make sure we have the appropriate semiconductors to meet our needs. Uh, You know, I I think there's lots of excitement about this industry. Uh, Lots of folks are looking and trying to understand how they can enter and look. Uh, you know, we have we have volume today, and that makes us attractive. So I, I guess there are places in the world where citing Tesla as an excellent executor um, convinces people of things. I'll let people decide if that's convincing or not. But um, uh, clearly, they think that they're going to um, get this factory up and running real fast, and that they've got the skill to do that. Well, I mean, Tesla does know about a gigafactory. I don't even know what that word gigafactory means. But it yeah. came from it came from Tesla, didn't it? Uh, okay. It's the first time I remember hearing about a gigafactory. But hey, who doesn't want a gigafactory in their hometown? Corey, what's your next drill down? Silvergate Capital. We've looked at this company in the past, but it's very much in the news uh, today. A number of times. Uh, this is the crypto bank, right? Correct. Trades under SI, Silvergate Capital trades under SI, and shares have dropped 
in a month and dropped 82% over the past 12 months. So what's yeah, new with Silvergate? Well, it's getting rocked uh, with the rest of the crypto world with news that FTX has got liquidity problems. FTX, one of the, the largest um, exchanges for crypto trading. Um, uh, and I'll get into that. But first, let's talk about what Silvergate does. So Silvergate years ago decided they wanted to get crypto trading exchanges as clients for their bank. So in order to do that, they wanted to offer solutions that uh, the crypto industry couldn't get anywhere. Crypto companies like Coinbase want to offer 24-7 trading because those markets are open around the clock. It's a, one of the interesting functions of crypto that you don't get with other equities or, or um, uh, commodities or currencies. Uh, and so um, they've, they were able to build a 24-7 crypto trading solution that they call the Silvergate Exchange Network, or SEN. I did a bad job of explaining this, I think, in a recent show. But the Silvergate Exchange Network, SEN, allows um, uh, essentially banking to happen for these uh, institutional crypto institutions. Um, uh, so, you know, the, the, the big traders of crypto are able to get 24-7 access to banks and are able to use um, things like Bitcoin uh, and other uh, cryptos as uh, collateral for um, their banking. Um, and so Silvergate is sitting on lots of crypto as a result. And so as crypto has continued to fall, the, what the, the size of Silvergate's book has continued to fall. And there are concerns about liquidity problems expressed by some of the uh, uh, analysts on Wall Street. Um, and among those concerns is, is whether or not these guys are, uh, have exposure to FTX. So FTX has been a, um, a company uh, that has been very active as there's been this sort of crypto winter in the last few months where the CEO, Sam Bankman-Fried, has been going in and buying other companies because it seemed like FTX was the, the la one of the last men standing uh, in the uh, institutional crypto markets. But surprise, surprise, uh, they had a lot of trouble, not least of which because the uh, FTX is its FTX token, uh, a crypto that FTX had issued. A lot of that was owned by Binance, and Binance said over the weekend, screw mm -hmm. these guys, we're going to dump it. That caused the FTX token to, to crash. And with the value of that token crashing, FTX itself was suddenly um, uh, exposed to um, some uh, um, derivative products that uh, might have put it out of business. So they had to do a deal with Binance to take them over, but the deal isn't done. So if XTX goes under, what does it mean for Silvergate? We don't really know. There's all kinds of rumors out in the market that even Wall Street analysts are printing saying that they've, they've got a, Silvergate's got a lot of credit out to FTX. FTX uh, hasn't said anything about that. So Silvergate put out a release uh, middle of the day today. And uh, I, will, I will read for briefly, but they said, we are a prudently regulated bank, CEO Alan Lane said in a statement, and we manage our balance sheet to provide liquidity for our clients while maintaining a strong capital position in excess of the well-capitalized status required by federal banking regulations. So they're not really coming out. They've put some specific numbers out about the size of their portfolio. Um, and also saying that they have the ability to borrow from the Federal Home Loan Bank and the Federal Reserve, further strengthening our liquidity position. And that's like saying, if I hack my arm off, you know, I can go to the hospital. Like, that's not really like a positive, everything's going to be great statement. So I don't know, right. the stock has sold off about 10% uh, today alone. Also worth noting, um, a friend uh, brought this up to me, that uh, um, over the weekend... They quietly on a Friday, right? The Friday night dump of an SEC statement. Yeah. They got rid of their chief risk officer at Silvergate. Now, the former chief risk officer was a son-in-law of the Silvergate CEO. 
Huh. Now the COO is going to oversee risk. Kathleen Freyher, I think is how you pronounce her name, um, is the COO and now the CRO, chief risk officer as well. You can't imagine the chief risk officer on her first day in that job on Monday gets to see this wonderful problem of FTX, one of the important clients of Silvergate, um, suddenly uh, going sneakers up or threatening to. So we shall see. But here is what. So, yeah, well, exactly. So uh, do they have the resources they need? And that's putting out the statement clearly shows they need to address that uh, to the markets. But three weeks ago when they reported earnings, here's what um, Anthony Lane had to say about their SEN business and how much it was being used, what the volumes were in SEN. With lower uh, market trading volumes and lower price volatility, you know, that's, that's resulted in, in obviously lower send volumes. Um, it's, it's also um, then um, correlated to lower um, transactions, you know, the, the on-ramping and off-ramping of dollars um, with existing customers who are, you know, wiring in, in money or wiring out money, et cetera. There's just less activity. So it's really hard to predict. The one thing that we have confidence in is that as long as we're continuing to add customers um, who are, um, you know, planning to use the SEND uh, as, as the market, as the broader crypto market stabilizes, um, you know, we, we think the long-term trajectory is, is, is still up and to the right. You know, I mean, if you zoom out and just think about some of the announcements, the institutional announcements that have been made in, in the last two or three months or so with, you know, the BlackRock Coinbase um, partnership, NASDAQ announcing crypto custody, you know, Visa, uh, MasterCard just yesterday, uh, the BNY Mellon custody uh, announcement. There's, there's just, you know, there, there's a lot of institutional adoption that is still coming that, and, you know, none of these things are live yet. Um, they're all, they've all made announcements about things to come. And so, you know, we, 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 we could not be, um, you know, more optimistic on the long-term trajectory, uh, you know, but, but, um, but these things take time to play out. So SEN, SEN, right? They're, they're a Silvergate exchange network. That business that, uh, well, you know, they're thinking that the changes in their business may uh, take some time to play out. Well, that time was about three weeks. And it's and not playing I out the way these guys had gambled on. Yeah, and here I thought SEN was S-I-N, but no. Not Silvergate. S-E-N. It's, it's not one of the deadly sins either. No. Of which there are seven. In case you're you know, keeping a score at home. No, I'm, I'm, f- I'm, I'm very familiar with the seven deadly sins. What's, what's the old line for those of you scoring at home or those of you who are alone? Our next guest <laughs> is Columbus McKinnon CEO David Wilson. This is a really fun interview. So I hope yeah. you'll hang on for that right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled, technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. Welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. We are joined right now by the CEO of Columbus McKinnon, David Wilson. David, glad to have you on. Um, uh, what is the elevator pitch? How do you describe Columbus McKinnon uh, when, when you're at a cocktail party or, or something of the sort? 
Thanks, Corey. It's great to be here. Appreciate you having me on. I, I describe Columbus McKinnon as a company that is a leading worldwide designer, manufacturer, and marketer of intelligent motion solutions that move the world forward and improve lives. We really uh, make lifting equipment. Oh my God, that sounds like an MBA wrote that. I was going to say, I was going to say you sell really cool robots and stuff. Yeah. Well, we, we don't make or sell robots today, but we do sell uh, precision conveyance equipment that mount to automated mobile robots that are used in the e-commerce field. So some of the largest distribution warehouses in the e-commerce space today are using our, our equipment to assist those robots. So basically, it, it seems like uh, what you guys do is you make factories work. We do. We do. We assist in productivity, safety, and uptime. And when you think about what happened with the pandemic and the need to separate workers and provide lifting assistance so people didn't work need to work in as close or proximate uh, space, and when you think about rebalancing supply chains today and all the investment that's going into new greenfield or brownfield locations as rebalancing is happening, there's a tremendous amount of de demand for what we call intelligent motion solutions for material handling. And we really in, feel like there's a, a great, great opportunity here. In researching uh, the company, I, I saw you talk, talk a lot about food and beverage. And I mm -hmm. was thinking about, um, I, I can't really say that I worked in a factory, except that I worked inside a factory a little bit um, uh, in the beverage business. Um, no one's listening. This is old enough to remember Laverne and Shirley at the beer factory. But it was the same kind of thing where the, the automation was not as automatic as you would think as it, as it looks from the outside. Uh, is there a lot of growth there? And is that you guys have mentioned that in conference calls recently. What's what do you see? There is definitely as you think about the uh, movement of that uh, food product or beverage product. And then you think about the positioning of that product as it relates to labeling and the speed at which you can unpack bottles, fill bottles, position bottles, label and then palletize and ship. Our products are used both to transport, but also to accumulate. So we do a lot of work in the wine space uh, with reverse tapered bottles, which if you don't know what that means, it means they're narrower at the bottom than they are in the middle. And then they have the neck on the wine bottle. And so moving those at high speeds is difficult because they want to fall over. So we're yeah. able to accumulate those in a way that keeps them safe and stable, but also do it quickly and allow them to index to filling machines and assist our customers with that. So there is, yeah, there's a lot of automation in the food and beverage space today. Why is there growth in that space right now? I think uh, the Are automation is what's, is what's driving. And also, as you know, um, you know, there's a lot of development and shifting in, in the, um, you know, the, the food selection choices of people today. There's a lot more plant-based, there's a lot more healthy alternatives, there's a lot more focus on uh, healthy beverage and the packaging of those changes. And as the packaging changes, the handling of those materials changes. And so there's a lot of opportunities there. That's really interesting. What, what are the biggest areas of growth? I mentioned that one just because it's kind of captured my imagination and my memory of, of days with the uh, Canada Dry Bottling Factory in Rochester, New York. I know your company has been, your company has a history in upstate New York, right? It got started in Buffalo. Yeah, 145 years old and a rich history in Western New York. So uh, headquartered in Buffalo, and um, you know evolved over time. Now we have 20 locations around the world uh, where we manufacture. So those are manufacturing sites, not including sales and distribution. 
but um, you know, global company and one that has a rich history in Western New York for sure. You asked about the fastest growing uh, yeah. segments, and you know what I'd point to is that in recent years we've had explosive growth in e-commerce as uh, automation has driven developments in the in that space. And I told you earlier about the precision conveyance. Uh, solutions that we're providing on top of automated mobile robots for the largest player in that space. Um, and that's so that's been explosive growth, growth. But we've also seen a lot of growth in life sciences as we do work for major vaccine providers, you know, for the for the COVID vaccines and others. So uh, that's been an area of fast growth. And then electric vehicles. We do a lot of work in the e-vehicle space supporting auto manufacturers. So that's been a fast growing space. You you uh, you put up a huge fourth quarter uh, in terms of revenues, one of the biggest you've ever had after kind of really stagnant growth going back many many years, and even a, a big dip during during COVID, uh, during right. the early days of the pandemic. Um, what's what 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 trend am I seeing there when I look at your revenue chart? That you know, if 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 you squint with your left eye, the right eye looks really great because you've got like <laughs> eight quarters since the depths of the pandemic to uh, fantastic growth. With good expansion, yeah. We grew 39% last year. Our fiscal year ends in March. So March 31st uh, of this year, you know, completed our fiscal 22 period and we grew 39% in that year over the prior year. So from 650 million to 807 million, I believe it was. Sorry, nine. 907 million. So 39% uh, growth, uh, really uh, driven about 50-50 by organic developments and acquisition. We acquired two companies in that year, including Dorner Manufacturing, which is a precision conveyance company, and then Garvey, which is a leading accumulation company. And we're diversifying the business away from its history of really focusing on lifting solutions, which is lifting from the ceiling with hoists and and, uh, lifts to more now conveyance, precision positioning of product between automation processes and assisting with the accumulation of those products between processes where they have different cycle times. Does the, how are those businesses different? All of it is material handling. So all of it relates back to what we're calling intelligent motion solutions for material handling. And even that legacy lifting equipment, which has its roots in single point attached in the ceiling, you know, manual hoist where you might pull a chain to lift something heavy with a pulley system to something that's much more automated, in many cases, wire rope oriented now, depending upon the solution we provide. And then with a lot of automation wrapped around it to move whatever you're lifting in a direction where you have no fly zones, you have anti-sway technology, you have uh, a much safer and more productive environment than you would have had historically. I'm sorry, Corey, I can't hear you. My computer decided to mute. Let's, well, thankfully, we have an editor. No fly zones? What do you mean no fly zones? <laughs> no fly zones. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, uh, way to refer- reference the, the technology. We, when we lift materials, so let's say we're list, lifting a bit large uh, roll of steel and we're moving it around a factory for a company that's going to position it for you know, production process. And let's say you want to move it, you know, across the floor and to the right and then to a machine and lower it so that it can be loaded for unwinding. Um, There may be an area you don't want that material to move into. Uh, You could have office space out there in multi-stories. Like say the executive bathroom. 
don't want executive. that company. To, yeah, you don't want to steal on the other side. Demolish that executive bathroom. No, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want it to fly into material handling r- racks or a place where there's a high traffic area for employees. And so you'd have safe spaces that you would not allow the uh, material to move into. You'd have anti-sway technology, which would stop it from swaying, keeps it nice and level and steady. Um, and there's a lot of improvements from an automation standpoint to have automatic movement paths that can be established. So you can remote control even the solution or you know, manage the, the movement of materials in a way that increases productivity with less workers tied to that activity. That's really interesting. How many SKUs do you guys have? How many sort of different types uh, of equipment do you sell? And how has that changed over the last few years? I know you've done these two yeah. acquisitions. Sure, sure. So we have today, um, we had 55,000 active SKUs as we entered wow. last year. These are saleable SKUs. We reduced that count to about 26,000 over the course of the last year. And in reducing those that SKU count, we've been really focused on a principle uh, that we're driving as a, a you know culture shift in our company called 80-20. We're really focusing on prioritizing our efforts around our most valuable, uh, our ability to add the most value to our customers, our ability to create the most value for our shareholders and our company. And so we've simplified the product lines and the portfolio to 26,000 SKUs. We still have too many. Uh, we have a great opportunity uh, to further uh, platform, we're saying, the product lines. So going from, you know, seven brands and multiple SKUs that do very much the same thing to a more concentrated fit-for-purpose solution that's more marketable, a better solution for our customers and modularized, gives us more concentration with our vendors and is uh, a more cost-effective solution. But I would think that some customers, that's got to be risky, in a time when you you, know, you saw a big downturn in your business during the pandemic. Now here you are just a couple of years out of that downturn. And now you're saying to your customer, I'm sorry, you can't have the start button on the left. You got to have the start button on the right. We're not offering a different SKU for that. Yeah, we've done a lot of voice of the customer work and we're trying to stay very close to our customers and make sure we're making the right decisions as we rationalize. And I feel like we've been effective with that. And ultimately uh, where we're arriving at with that voice of the customer input is that we're making good decisions as it relates to this platforming solution. There's been some learnings al- along the way where we've, we, we've made decisions that we have learned from, but um, I feel like we're being thoughtful as we, as we approach that. It's a, it's a good point and it's an important one to us, Corey. So uh, you also spend, uh, I, w- I would have thought with all of the technology involved, you spend a lot more in R&D than you do. But your R&D spending is, is, you know, for companies, you do, said you're doing roughly $900 million in revenue. You're spending $15, 20000000 million a year in R&D. Yeah. So we've increased our R&D spending in each of the last couple of years. And prior to that, we, the year before that, we made a decision to slow it because we wanted to get, make sure that the engine was working correctly, if you will. When you think about, um, you know, think about a car engine, you don't want to put gas into an engine that doesn't run well right? We want to make sure that the engine runs well, and then we'll put high quality gas into it and maybe a lot of it. And so we really focused on making sure we had a good NPD process. We had the right kind of resources and discipline focused on it. And we started, we, we went from a list of, of initiatives that was really large to a list of initiatives that was much narrower. And we focused on launching uh, the right products. And over the last couple of years, we've had good results in terms of new product growth and, um, the vitality of our, our portfolio. 
So we feel good so about the work. Expect we expect that there. to increase going forward now that you know it. I'm, I'm thinking of the metaphor of my four teenagers. I've been teaching kids to drive, it seems like, for, I don't know, the last 30 years, but it's, it's only 30 years. It's about two. <laughs> but I'm all teaching all these teenagers to drive, and I'm thinking, all right, go slow until you figure out what the hell you're doing. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. That's the same same analogy. That's exactly what we're trying to do. And we've been increasing our spend each year in R&D uh, over the last couple, and we have a plan and a roadmap. We just had an investor day. We talked about growing the business to a billion and a half dollars in revenue over five years, increasing the EBITDA margins to 22, uh, 21%, excuse me, over that same uh, same period. And last quarter, they're about 10%, right? Uh, EBIT, no, EBITDA was 16 Okay, thank you. Sorry, I was looking at EBIT. Yeah, I was taking, yeah. Taking another yeah. so EBITDA. And so, you know, 16 to 21 is the roadmap. And we've got a line of sight on a near-term objective of 19%. And with work we've done around our cost base, our operational efficiency, and uh, pricing, we feel like we're in the right zip code as we get volume to start moving through. We've got a record backlog right now that we need to ship. Is there, um, uh, I, 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 I hate it when the interviewers new to a company ask macroeconomic questions because I can't begin to figure out the micro story, but I am curious about where you sit today and what's happening with our economy when the Fed is very actively trying to slow down yeah. manufacturing growth. Right, right. So we, um, we had record orders in the first calendar quarter of this year. So our fourth fiscal quarter of 20 right. of calendar or our fiscal calendar 22, which was the first calendar year of this year, or first calendar quarter of the year, we had $270 million of orders. That was a record for the company. We followed that up in our Q1, which is the April to June timeframe with $267 million. And when you FX adjust that, it was actually another record normalized or if you, um, um, adjust for that. A lot of business in Europe, yes. Yeah, so we we had actually uh, we have about thirty percent of our business in Europe. So we um, you know we had a good a good first two quarters, and we're on a run rate from an order booking standpoint that's over a billion dollars. We uh, you know feel really good about where the business is, but we know we had a big price increase that went into effect as we entered this quarter that we're in right now, or just finished. And so we had orders that were placed in advance of that price increase for our standard and configured products that were are more uh, distribution oriented. And so that pulled some volume into that period. Also, yeah. our fiscal second quarter, which is a heavy vacation period in August, tends to have a level of seasonality to it. So while we anticipated that we might see uh, some softening in the order base, we also uh, are looking very closely at leading indicators. And at this stage, we haven't seen anything that really suggests a waning in demand from a quotation standpoint. Quotes have been stable and demand around quotation activity has been high. Um, so That's great conversations, but we're seeing longer cycles between quotation and order conversion. Yeah. So, so I think, you know, we're in this stage of, I, I think, we're in the early stages of, you know, potentially seeing things start to soften, but we're Customers watching closely twice before they buy, but they're still buying. Right. That's right. Interesting. interesting. And there's some really interesting developments. We've got a lot of macro drivers that are supporting our business. I mentioned explosion in e-commerce. I mentioned e-vehicles, the vaccination and life science movements, uh, the work around rebalancing of supply chains, uh, infrastructure investment. You know, we've got a lot of places where, there are, there's a recession, 
that is looming. And there's certainly, you know, a lot of opinions on when and how deep and so forth. But, you know, that's something that's out there for sure. And then you have, we've got record backlog today. And we have a lot of macro activity that would suggest, you know, we're in this transition for the industrial automation space where, you know, we can really assist customers as they continue to invest even through a recession cycle. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah, it's a, it is such an interesting time right now, uh, not least of which for you guys. I also feel like with your internal pressures, I'm curious, uh, let me restate the question. Where are you seeing the pressures that have uh, caused you or let you take this price increase? Uh, well, in terms of raising our prices, our, yeah, us what's, raising what's prices. Getting, what's getting expensive yeah. for your business? Oh, what's getting expensive for our business? Well, um, you know, over the last few quarters and, and actually a couple of years, we've seen, you know, rapid inflationary pressures around freight and logistics. We've seen increasing costs around steel and metals markets, uh, motors, electrical assemblies, chipsets. Excuse me. So we've seen uh, pretty substantial increases in those costs, which led us to obviously adjust our our prices. What and about labor? You didn't mention labor. Yeah, labor inflation has been high. We've had uh, you know pretty substantial wage inflation, uh, and we've had to offset that with the price increases that we've put through. And over the last four quarters, we've actually in three of the four quarters we've had record gross margins in three of the last yeah. four quarters. So that's been been something that um, you know we've been pleased with our ability to be agile as it relates gross to our price like thirty eight percent, which is which is just amazing for an industrial manufacturer. I, um, I, you say wage inflation. I say it was nice of you to give people a raise. <laughs> well, we, we want to be competitive and we've got great employees. We really think we've got a top notch employee base and they're working really hard. They worked hard through the pandemic and then to recover. We're also trying to become an employer of choice and attract the best talent. And that's difficult now. You know, there's, there's a limited supply of labor for every one job uh, opening that's out there, there's a half a person looking for the one, or I should say for two jobs, there's only one person looking for a job right now. So you've got to be in a position where you've got a competitive offer. And so well, I'm half the man I used to be, so maybe I'm just the kind of guy you're looking for. <laughs> um, David, I, I also wonder, again, as a native of Western New York, um, uh, I wonder what it's like, you know, it has been an economically challenged place for most of my life. Um, yeah. And it didn't used to be. And I wonder if it's a little easier to operate there and a little easier to hire there because you're competing with, I don't know, Wegmans and nobody else. <laughs> it's it's actually been a, a great time for us. We've had a pretty stable workforce here. Uh, we have about 130 employees in Western New York today at our headquarters location. Um, and that's been stable really throughout the last several years. Um, and when we've been recruiting, um, because of the pandemic and because of virtual work, and as you think about where you look for employees, we've looked for employees locally, and there's certainly competition locally. There's some great companies still in Western New York that do a great job. Um, but we've been able to access a broader market through virtual work, and that's resulted in us um, you know, building a team that's a bit more dispersed. Um, and that's created an opportunity for us to leverage technology to be more closely approximate with one another. But there's also a need as we go forward to create a culture that supports the growth that we're driving for. So we're targeting a billion and a half over five years. We've got a strategy we're executing deliberately on. And to do that, we need to increase our, our, our team size. 
So we want to have our leadership team more centrally concentrated. And so we're dealing with changes associated with that. Interesting stuff. Interesting company. Columbus McKinnon, CEO, David Wilson, we appreciate your time. It's my complete pleasure. Thanks, Corey. It's very nice to meet you. All right, coming up next in the drill down, we'll give you the one number that tells us a whole lot about Columbus McKinnon when the drill down continues. The drill down is brought to you by ERA. With ERA, give yourself an information advantage, connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A.com. And you can listen to the drill down on your smart speaker. Ask your smart speaker to play the drill down podcast. You can just imagine what happens after that. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, we're back with the drill down. Bite that one number that tells us a whole lot. Isaac Webster is with me. Isaac, uh, David Webster talking about their order growth. I thought the, the percentage David of Wilson, growth. you mean? Oh, my goodness. David Wilson. <laughs> David Webster is uh, my dad. I'm literally looking at um, <laughs> his name right in front of me in his picture. I'm a moron. Let's start again. Three, two. And we are back with the drill down bite to that one number that tells us a whole lot about Columbus McKinnon. Isaac Webster with me as well. Isaac, interesting company, interesting stuff they're doing. Yeah, I, I thought this was a fascinating conversation. So that number I thought would be interesting would be the order growth, just the number of orders that they have, right? Because you get you get the FX conversion and you get the revenue growth off. You just wonder like what, how many more orders are you getting? And is that recognized, you know, as they're cutting back on how many SKUs they offer, half as many items for sale. Here's the number. You want to know how many are uh, the order growth in the last uh, year over year in the most recent quarter? 11%. Wow. That's that's pretty heavy growth. I mean, yeah. you know, double digit growth there and, and uh, uh-huh. uh, for industrial equipment at a time when the economy is, you know, hitting some headwinds. Uh, these guys are starting to really see some consistent growth um, when they when they draw their charts and their investor presentations. They can they've got a lot of error. They got some they got those sort of bumpy column charts that they draw a line straight up into the right when, of course, it's not straight up into the right, but it's a. Uh, it's interesting to see the growth in this company when you sort of add it all up and average it out. Yeah. And I got the sense from the conversation that he's really focused on just investing in the future of the company in the people that are there. Uh, I thought that was uh, pretty interesting. Yeah. So there we have it. Columbus McKinnon, interesting stuff. Hey, thank you for your time listeners. We do appreciate it. We have a lot of fun making the show. We hope you enjoy listening to it and Hey, tell your friends, tweet about it, share on the socials. We need all the love we can get. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. I'm Corey Johnson. Ben Wilson is our editor extraordinaire. And The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network. <laughs>